These are unique circumstances, to say the least. Uh, I am standing here in front of a camera this morning, and there's no one here except just a couple guys there uh, graciously working the, the AV equipment this morning. So these are unique and strange circumstances. Uh, as all of you know, medical professionals and government officials have asked us to keep, do social distancing. And of course, we, we need to abide by by that, uh, that we would be doing well to obey and heed the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourself and specific application to care for the least of these. Uh, we were talking as elders just this uh, yesterday on a um, Google chat room about how we can do virtual ministry. Uh, that's a, a term that, to be honest with you, up until very, very recently, I thought was something of an oxymoron. We're talking about how to do virtual ministry with a congregation that is dispersed and unable to come together. Now, that is extraordinary, and I, I do want to just take a quick moment uh, here before we go any further just to let you know that we are trying to think through creative ways to allow for as much normalcy in the midst of much abnormality. You're going to be hearing more about that. How do we continue to be a congregation? How do we continue to, to be CPC Clarksville in these unique times? So stay tuned. You will be hearing more about that in, in the very, very near future and the impact on that for all of us. But again, these are unique circumstances. It's, it's strange times. I, I, I don't doubt that for, for no few of us, if you had been asked the question just even two weeks ago, do you think that this and this and this and this and this, in terms of news stories like headlines where we are today, do you actually think that that is where we would be in two weeks from now? And there's no doubt in my mind the overwhelming majority of you including myself, would have been hard-pressed to really say that, yeah, that's, that's where we would be. You would have just dismissed it out of hand. These are strange times, strange times. I think it's fair to say that they are troubling times as well. No stretch there whatsoever. You may have asked the question, maybe just down inside, maybe you've never articulated it, um, but I don't doubt no few of us have begun to ask it. Lord, what's going on? What's going on? Where are you? Where are you? The text we're going to look at here together for just a little while from Matthew 27 addresses that. We're pressing on in our series in Matthew's gospel. And this connects right to those questions. Where are you? Where are you? Right in the midst of Jesus' darkest Hour. We can have a solid, true, substantive answers to such questions. So, let's go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. I would say it's on the screen. It's not. I trust that you uh, have something there in front of you that you can go to. Uh, Matthew chapter 27. That's the first book in the New Testament before Mark and Luke and John, we have Matthew 27, we're going to read verse, starting at verse 11, on down through verse 26. So Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. Hear now God's word. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. 
But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, But rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Well, let's pray together for a moment. I'm going to begin this prayer from Psalm 91, just the first few verses of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let's pray together. Lord, by your mercy and your grace and your kindness, you have called us to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. You have called us to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You would have us to cry out to you as our refuge and our fortress, our God, the one in whom we trust. May it be. May it be. We don't thank you for a pandemic. That would be wrong to to thank you for an evil. But we thank you for what you can do through it. To kick out the props, the false hopes that we are so accustomed to relying upon. The things that we look to to hold us up and carry us through. And all the while, you have been saying to us that you are our life, you are our refuge, you are our fortress, the one in whom we must trust, the one shelter that we can count on. So we ask that this morning, this time, here in your your word, and these days ahead, we would learn all the more what it means to pray Psalm 91. We pray that you would teach us here from Matthew 27 and give us ears that would hear. And in your name we pray now. Amen.
I don't think it's any stretch to say that we feel stretched. There was a lot going on in all of our lives long before this pandemic of COVID-19 hit. Um, there was a lot going on. Our plates felt full. No few of us, perhaps even sideboards that felt full. And this has just added on. It's not as though all those things just hit pause or went away. Hardly, hardly. In fact, in many cases, the stress and strain of what we're facing now has just added to that and made it more complicated, made it harder. So the, the weight of things just begins to press down just a, a little bit more. Well, what, is, what is the nature, the, the, what are the dynamics of, of such a thing? Well, of course, we're confused. We're, we're concerned. We, we don't really know where things are going. We just can't see what is coming and when. And that, of course, is troubling. That, of course, is, is confusing. But it's more than that. It's more than just that we are confused. It's more than just we are concerned. It goes deeper. When you really begin to plumb the depths of what's, what's bothering us, it's that we feel as though we've lost control. We don't feel safe. Putting it more accurately, more truly, it's probably better to say that we thought we had control. We thought we had some semblance of control, and current events, the most current events, have forced us to reckon with the fact, the reality, that we've never been in control. We've never been in control. And now we have to deal with that. So what then? Well, that brings us to our text, and it's, it's so important that we understand the context of the text, where we are in the flow of events. So this is Good Friday. That's what we're reading of here. Uh, this is Good Friday, the early morning hours, in fact, of, of Good Friday. And specifically, the Sanhedrin, the governing officials of uh, the, the Jewish leaders, their chief priests and the elders, they have met, formal inquiries have been made, formal charges have been lodged uh, against Jesus, a charge of, of blasphemy, which was a, a capital offense. Now, because, of course, at this time in Israel's history, it was occupied territory, occupied by the Roman army, and given the way that the Romans ran things in those days, the Sanhedrin, did, though this was a capital offense that they were charging Jesus with, they did not have the freedom, they did not have the authority to actually execute this prisoner. So they needed to go to the Roman governor who was Pontius Pilate, which brings us to where we are now in our text in the flow of events. Jesus on trial standing there in the dock, if you will, before this man Pontius Pilate. And if there was ever a time, if there was ever a time that God felt Hmm. Let me put it this way, that it felt it to us as though God was powerless to do anything. It felt to us as though God was powerless to do anything. It's certainly here in this wrestling match, this jousting match in which you have Pilate over here, the Roman authorities, and the Sanhedrin over here, the Jewish authorities, and it seems as which Jesus is just this pawn in, in, in the middle and has no real active role. He's just a passive participant. It seems that way. So God is powerless to do anything, but it's just the opposite. Completely, it could not be more untrue to say that Jesus is just a pawn and passively involved in this. Hardly, hardly. Whatever else you may heard, however else it may seem, 
whatever else you may feel, what we're seeing here in this passage is that the Lord's ways always are such that we can turn to Him, that we can look to Him then and now, in everything, in all, in all times. His ways with us are such, whatever, however it may feel, whatever, however things may look, whatever else you may heard, His ways with us are such that we can, in fact, turn to Him in all things, in all things. Now, how do we see that? How do we know that? How, how in the world could we possibly say such things? It's a bold claim. How could we say such things? Well, in particular from this text, there are three things I want to highlight and, and walk us through that, that shine light on, on the, this idea. First thing being that the story is true. That's the first point. The story is true. The second thing being that the verdict is in. The verdict is in. And the third thing being is that the king has come. The story is true, the verdict is in, the king has come. So we see here in, in our reading from Matthew 27. And well, let's look at these things in turn together and move through the passage. So the first thing that we need to lock down on and, and, and wrestle with and be assured of is, in fact, the story is true. This is not fantasy. This is not fiction. This is not made up. This is not wishful thinking. It did not lead off with and once upon a time. This is real. This is history the events that we're reading of here. So let's consider the historical record. Pontius Pilate, who is he? Who is this man? Well, ancient sources, beyond just the ancient source here of the first century source of Matthew, we also have some first century other sources. The Jewish historian Josephus went on record as describing Pontius Pilate this way, as being greedy, inflexible, cruel, willing to resort to robbery and oppression. That's Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. And you have Philo, a first century philosopher. This is a quote. He said, Pilate was by nature rigid and stubbornly harsh and of spiteful disposition and exceedingly wrathful. So that's, that's who we're reading about here. That's the, the man at the center, well, somewhat at the center uh, of, of these events. Pontius Pilate, that's the man. That's something of his bio. Well, let's talk about his resume now. What do are, what are we know of something, his career? By this point in his tenure there as the governor, the prefect there in Judea, the Roman province of Judea, he's been there for about seven years. And in that time, in that time, he has managed to really anger an already embittered population. Several events that, that took place that have really inflamed the people, so much so that protests, formal protests were lodged against Pilate and his ways of, of governing the, the, the people. Those protests went back to Rome, and Rome was upset enough with Pilate that in essence he was put on probation, not formally really, but for all practical purposes, he was a watched man. That's part of the context of where we are here by the time we get to this, this moment in the flow of history. One other thing that's worth noting, and it's not a side note by any stretch, Pilate's sponsor, the man who got him this position, had recently been executed for participating in a plot to assassinate the emperor. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the expression, guilt by association. That's what Pilate is facing. It's, a, it's very, quite complicated for him, way out there on the frontier of the Roman Empire at the time here governing this Judean province. So again, this forms something of the historical backdrop for the events, and it drives, has a lot to do with driving some of his decisions and how it is that he comes to make 
the decisions that he makes and come to the conclusions and take the steps that he, that he did. So that's the historical record. There are ongoing implications for the fact that this is history. This, this is reality. This is not fiction. For starters, just for now, I'll just give you two. Thinking about the implications, the ongoing implications for the fact that this is history, one being that the accuracy of the accounts, we can, we can count on what Matthew is relaying to us. We can count on We can believe it. It's true. It's history, just as with the other three gospel writers. We can count on what he is saying. We can believe this, take it at face value. That's the first thing. But even more, we need to listen to the claims that Matthew is making. Now, what claims? Well, going if you could just take a, a survey of Matthew's gospels, basically this, these three things that he wants, that he's pressing, challenging the reader to consider. First, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Secondly, why has he come? Why has he come? And thirdly, what difference should that make? So those three things, Matthew is pressing on, on the reader, challenging us to consider as we're going through what he is relaying to us. Who is Jesus? Why has he come? What difference should that make? How should we respond to him? If, in fact, think with me, if, in fact, this is history, those questions need to be asked. If, in fact, what Matthew is telling us is real, he's not making this up, this is what happened, then those questions take on tremendous significance, and we need to consider them. Now, what does that have to do with our uh, immediate circumstances, thinking in terms of this global pandemic and the fact that uh, I'm, again, I'm, the artif well, artificiality of preaching to a camera and, and the necessity of doing things this way. Well, let's talk about the, the erosion of foundations for a moment. For some number of years, not just recent years and recent decades, but going all the way back to the period of the Enlightenment in the 18th century in Europe in particular, there was an erosion that set in when a false dichotomy was set up, a, a false distinction was set up between the Jesus of history to be studied by scholars and the Jesus of faith supposedly invented by the church. There was this faith, false dichotomy, this, this, this line drawn between these two Jesuses that supposedly existed, that of history and that of faith. Now, that causes a terrible erosion of foundation over, over time, slowly but surely. It destroys, it, it, it takes away any hope that we would have something to stand on that would hold when the storm comes. Well, the storms come. At least a storm has, has come, and we're living in it right now. Now think about what that has done to, and, and how you see it reflected and how many today, not just in our neighborhoods and in, in our com larger community and our culture, but the world, how so many are responding to COVID-19, this coronavirus. Some, on one extreme, are crying out, in essence, that the sky is falling, full of fear, that everything is given way, they're frightened. It seems that everything, that all their hopes are fleeting. Why? Because they have no foundation. They have no foundation. So inevitably, of course, that's going to be one, one response when you have no foundation in a crisis like this, this comes. Well, friends, as disciples of Jesus, we have so much, so much to, to, to say and show to people 
in the midst of such panic. That would be one extreme in how we see the foundation torn out. But there is another extreme. It sounds like just the opposite, but actually it has a whole lot more in common with the other extreme than you may first realize. So the one extreme is just saying that the sky is falling. The other extreme is saying this is all a hoax. This is all a hoax. It's all made up. It's all just a bunch of hooey. And that, folks on that wing of the extreme are actually in just as much danger in many cases as those on the other extreme. Now, why do I, I, I say that? Because all, now, now, granted, let me just take a quick step back and say oftentimes the reason that people are responding in those ways is it has to do with news sources. So if you're reading news sources that fan the flame of your panic, well, that's going to encourage you to respond that way. And if you're reading news sources and immersed in such things that tend to, to make you think that, in fact, it's nothing but a hoax, then of course, you're going to tend towards a response like that. But it can also be that your foundation has been eroded, and so because of that, instead of panic, you're responding with a, 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 a face of bravado, unwilling to face what's happened because you're unable to face what's happened. Again, because there's no foundation. Friends, we need to face it. We need to face what's going on and all the uncertainties. We need to face it and to know that the story is true. That what we're reading of here in Matthew's gospel is, in fact, true. And we can face it. We need not turn to one extreme or the other. We actually can face this, to know that the story is true. And again, no matter how we may be feeling, no matter how things may seem, we can turn to the Lord in anything, in everything, because this story is true. Well, that's the first point. The second, moving on from that and connected, of course, to that, is that the verdict is in. The verdict is in. And what I mean by that is this is one of the themes that you see again and again in the Gospels of the New Testament, that it's one of the things that the Gospel writers really want us to understand is that Jesus is innocent. Jesus is, despite all the charges lodged against him, was without any guilt, without any sin whatsoever, and that is of, of tremendous significance as well. well let's, let's delve in and think about that for just, just a moment. How do we see that here in the text? We see it in, just in Pilate's response, his engagement with Jesus in the flow of these events. So you see first his insight. Pilate is a savvy man. You see it in his insight, his understanding as to really what's going on and how is it that this man, humanly speaking, has come to be standing there in front of him. And you see it there in verse 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. So Pilate knows it's out of jealousy, not out of justice, that these charges have been lodged against this man standing there in front of him. Okay, that's the first thing, so Pilate's insight. That's the other thing that we see in terms of Pilate's understanding of really what's going on is this message that he gets from his wife. And that's in the very next verse, verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. You don't understand that in those days, the Romans oftentimes regarded dreams as being omens, messages from the gods. That's the kind of feel, that's the kind of impact that this is having upon Pilate's wife and therein Pilate himself. It's 
It's a question Matthew intends for us to understand. It's creating questions within Pilate's own mind, and, or maybe you could say reaffirming his initial impression of things that are going on. Well, that then takes us to Pilate's actual proclamation there in the very end, the, the dramatic uh, thing that we read there towards the end, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, by that, Pilate is not washing his hands or trying to cleanse his conscience of some felt guilt. It's really not that at all. Really what he's doing here, it's a symbolic demonstration. This is a custom. Pilate knows this is a Jewish custom. He's been there long enough. He's doing this as a public symbolic demonstration before these Jewish people to communicate to them in the most emphatic way that he sees no grounds. He doesn't believe there's really any evidence to carry out this sentence that he's about to pronounce and to allow uh, upon Jesus. So the verdict is in, and, 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 and Matthew's desire, in essence, if, if I can summarize it this way, is to put, it, 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 something like this. In case you did, hadn't seen it, in case you missed it, even Pontius Pilate, even this Roman governor can see Jesus is innocent. Jesus is blameless. Jesus has no guilt whatsoever. Now, is that just an historical footnote? Is that just an, an interesting curiosity point to be, to be made? No, it's so much more than that. It is of great significance, eternal significance. How so? Well, every one of us stands before a holy God, every one of us, every man, woman, and child, with charges lodged against us. True charges in this case. What kind of charges, you may be wondering? Well, the charges of blasphemy, having made ourselves to be gods, not just idolatry, but you could call it egolatry. So we have been charged before the judge of judges with a charge of blasphemy, not just that, sedition, treason against the cosmic king. So there we stand in the dock before him, guilty as charged, and our Savior, Jesus, the man standing there before Pilate, is completely innocent and is taking our guilt upon himself and giving us his righteousness, his innocence. It is the grand exchange, the grand exchange, a great gift given to us. That's what's going on here. It's, it's why his innocence is so vital for us to understand, why his guiltlessness is so vital for us to understand, because it's what enables him to stand in our place. And the irony, of course, the, the judicial, historical, theological irony of all this is the charges that we are guilty of, blasphemy and sedition, are the ones that he is falsely charged with and that he bears that he bears upon himself. He is the only one that can do that and take it away. So, my friends, you see, the verdict is in, and that has eternal significance. Eternal significance. Now, how so even today, as you're watching this and thinking about this, what, how, how would there be any lasting significance for, of that for us today? Well, of course, the special circumstances that we're all in are calling no few of us to work at home, to do schooling from home, 
Uh, there's a lot of inconvenience. Some of us feel on top of one another. Our, our rhythm is just, just thrown off. Life, normal life, has been disrupted. Just we feel so inconvenienced, to say the least. But beyond that, no few of us are wondering about maybe the next few days, next few weeks, next few months, about our income and the stability of employment and things along those lines. And then if you're watching maps and you're reading statistics and you're thinking about a virus and it's as though there's an unseen enemy that seems to be getting closer and closer and that can really spin up your emotions. Now what does all that do? What does all that begin to do? What it begins to do is expose some things, expose some things within our, our hearts. We begin to have to wrestle. We begin to learn or relearn that there are some dark shadows down in here, some things that maybe we knew of, but now we just can't seem to hide from. Our lust, our anger, our worry, our anxiety, our greed, our laziness, our discontentment, all such things. The gods of personal peace and affluence that many of us have fallen prey to bowing down and worshiping, those gods are, are angered now. All that begins to get exposed in trying times. And with that, the need of a Savior. The reality of our sin is exposed, and therein all the more the need of a Savior, one to carry that sin and guilt away. Think of Barabbas here for a moment, okay? Let's think of together just for of Barabbas, this real historical figure that we read of here in, in the gospel accounts. And in Matthew, what do we see there in verses 15 through 17? Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And skipping down to verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Now, there are three men who would be hung on crosses that day. Barabbas would not be one of them. Why? Because Jesus would be hung, crucified in his place. Jesus would die that this man would live. Jesus would be condemned that this man might go free. Now this is real history. Somewhere out there in the other part of the world, the remains of Barabbas's bones can be found. This is not fiction. This is not history. This is not fantasy. This is history. At the same time, this is a dramatic picture. Barabbas. Jesus being crucified in Barabbas's place. This is a dramatic picture. 
of what is true and what has been true for countless numbers of people down through the ages who have looked to Jesus as their Savior. And he has stood in their place. Barabbas, real individual, but a powerful picture of that. Again, the, the, the story is true. The verdict is in. And again, it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter how you may feel about what's going on. We can still yet look to the Lord in any and everything. In any and everything. Story is true. Verdict is in. The last point. The king has come. The king has come. Again, one of the, the themes that we see in the Gospels, all, all four, and Jesus is quite intentional. Slowly but surely, he becomes even more emphatic about this. Sometimes speaking implicitly to it, sometimes speaking explicitly to it, the fact that the kingdom has come and is coming, and he is the king. Now, it comes out very clearly here in his testimony, very clearly in his testimony. You see it there in verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, think with me of the, the, what's at stake here. What a tremendous question. What a loaded question. This is the representative, Pontius Pilate, is the representative of the Roman Empire. He's an extension of Caesar. And he is asking this man standing on trial before him, are you a king? Caesar will brook no rivals. He will put up with that not in the least. There's a long history of insurgencies and revolutionaries being crucified and all their followers as examples for the populace. This is what happens when you do that. Jesus, are you a king? How does Jesus respond to that question? Jesus said, you have said so. You have said so. He's using a Jewish expression here. It's not the first time that he's been asked this question and responded in this way. This is a Jewish expression, and in the way that the phrasing is, is uh, spoken, it puts the responsibility back on the questioner, in essence saying, you, you have said so. Now, why would he use that kind of phrasing, that kind of expression? Because he recognizes that when he's asked this question, whether it's by a Roman judge or by the, the Jewish rulers, he knows that they have no understanding whatsoever of what he means when he speaks of a king and a kingdom. So when he answers this question, he answers it truthfully and clearly and directly, but on his own terms, recognizing the limits of their understanding and ability to grapple with what he is speaking of. That's Jesus' testimony. Make it very clear that this king has come and he is, in fact, the king. Now, that sounds an utter contrast to Pilate and his cowardice. Pilate's way of engaging with Jesus and his response to Jesus and Jesus' testimony actually shows us all the more the need for such a king, when you think about it, to come in the state of the world in which it was then and is still today. 
Pilate, Pilate really doesn't, he clearly doesn't really want to pronounce this sentence. He's trying to do everything he possibly can to get out from underneath this, to pass off the, the responsibility to someone else, or if it, at all possible, to appease everyone involved, to please everyone involved, and, and somehow get out from underneath having to make a decision. It's why he brings forth Barabbas. It's why he taps into this custom that he had set into place there in his time as, a, as the governor there in Judea. He is assuming, knowing something of Barabbas, and, and the other gospel writers tell us that, in fact, Barabbas was the leader of an insurrection. He was a notorious criminal, in, in, in fact. And Pilate is just assuming that surely Jesus, being who he is, and this man, Barabbas, being who he is, he's assuming that, of course, the, the crowds will choose Jesus, and then he'll be out from underneath this thing. But Pilate fails to reckon with and, and, and foolishly underestimates the influence of the leaders upon the people and their ability to work a crowd and stir them up as slander and gossip begins to move through that crowd like a wildfire so that a, a, a riot begins to, to foment. Pilate then takes some other half measures as well. Uh, it's in John's Gospel that we read of another flogging. It's not the scourging that we read of here in Matthew at the, at the end after the sentence has been pronounced just as Jesus is being led away to be crucified. We read of a flogging that takes place prior to this in which it seems that what Pilate was trying to do was to shamefully present Jesus, mockingly present Jesus, to having been flogged and then put forward there before the people uh, to, to persuade them, parading the, the, this, this is your king, surely you will choose him over Barabbas and that sort of thing. Well, here's the thing. If, if, in, fact, if in fact, Pilate, Pilate, if in fact he knew Jesus to be without guilt, to without blame, not be deserving of this sentence, then there should have been no efforts towards appeasement. He should have set Jesus free like that. If, in fact, Pilate is interested in justice. But he's not. It's not actually what Pilate is interested in ultimately at all. The king has come, and tragically, Pilate gets completely wrong the one who has come to make all things right. Now, what does this have to do with today and our current circumstances? The fact that the king has come, oh, my friends, it has so much significance, so much import for us today. We know this world has fallen. Look around. Look around you. We, we know, of, of course, of, of disease and empty lives and broken relationships and rampant poverty and injustice of, of all forms at all levels and racism wherever you, we go. We know this is a fallen world. And Jesus, as the king, has come to fix that invading that kingdom as the true king to take back what is his and to make all things new. To make all things new. 
The kingdom has come, and that is tremendous news. Not in full, but in fact. Not in full yet, but in fact. It will come in its fullness upon his return. It will come in its fullness upon his return. Now think of the implications of that for us today, right now. What a message of hope. With the assurance of that news, of that reality, of what is coming, the king and the kingdom, a day when all things will be made right. That is a message of hope, of great, great hope. We need not despair. We need never despair. Our fears, our worries, our anxiety about tomorrow Take that to heart. The degree to which we take that to heart, they will dissipate like the morning mist and will not keep you awake at 3 a.m. There's tremendous rest to be found in the hope of the kingdom. We need not despair. And we must not fear. We must not fear. We need not fear anything not a global pandemic or anything at all, if in fact the king has come and is bringing in his kingdom. In fact, in one day and in full. We need not fear. We need not fear anything. And we must not withdraw. We must not withdraw. And of course, I want to be careful when I say this. The social distancing we must abide by for the sake of the least of these and to to lessen the curve, to flatten the curve, as the statisticians speak of. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean withdraw. That doesn't mean withdraw. Not, not in any way at all. We are to, as people of hope, as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, as followers, as his disciples, we should be confidently and creatively Seeking out ways to love and to serve our neighbor. This whole world, in one way or another, has been struck by this virus and is going to be dealing with the repercussions of that for some time. This is not a time to pull back, this is not a time to adopt a bunker mentality. Jesus told the disciples, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and the proclamation of the gospel. We are not to be pulling back and hiding in our bunkers. If there was ever a time to be advancing and to be thinking and putting before the Lord and asking Him how He is calling us to steward and steward well, obediently, faithfully, our time our talents, and our treasure, not hoarding, but being generous, this was it. This is the church's moment. Because the story is true. The verdict is in, and the king has come. So no matter what you may have heard, what you may be feeling, how things may seem, we can and must turn to the Lord 
in everything, especially now. Now, let me wrap it up with, with this. I don't know who you are. I don't know who's listening. I don't know who's watching this video. I want to address three groups of people, if I may, just in wrapping this up. The first group, you are followers of Jesus. You are convinced, well immersed in the things that we've been talking about here, of the story, the verdict, and the king. You are, in fact, disciples of Jesus. You believe and you are following him. Don't stray. Sink your roots down into these things. They are your life. They are the basics. We do not graduate from these things. We are to stay grounded and to grow in them. Do not stray. There are so many around you who desperately need you to hold on. Don't stray. The second group. Some of you are, are seeking and asking questions, really good questions, maybe for the first time. Events and things on your mind and on your heart are caused, spinning up questions, maybe in ways to depths, degrees that, that never before. Don't waste this moment. Don't waste this opportunity. Start, start here. Start here with these things. The reality of the story and the verdict and the king. Ask your questions. You may find yourself in time like a child, learning to eat, learning to walk, learning to make your way for the, the first time. That's good. That's good. The third group. Some of you are recovering. You are returning. You're starting over. There was a time when you might have called yourself a disciple. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, you walked away. You were burned, you were hurt, and you find yourself being drawn back. It's as though you, you, you thought you'd forgotten, you tried to forget, and you just found you, you, you couldn't. Start here. Tell Jesus about it. He knows. He knows it all. He knows how it is that you got to where you are. Go to him about it. My friends, again, this is all real. This is all beautifully real. And the Lord's ways with us then and now have not changed. They are such that we can, in fact, we must, in fact, Go to him with everything. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is a wonder to us as we consider the reality that none of these things have taken you by surprise. There was nothing before the outbreak of this virus that took you by surprise. Nothing. Nothing in the history of man. Nothing in the history of our lives. 
that's ever taken you by surprise. Nothing now, nothing in the days in which we live, in the spread of this coronavirus and the responses and our ability to recover and what that will take us to in the days and weeks and months ahead. And there was nothing that took you by surprise that morning there in Pilate's headquarters. Nothing at all. There are no external circumstances that take you off guard. There is no internal wrestling, heart's question and ache that surprise or shocks you. Rather, rather, things are just being exposed to us perhaps for the first time or at least in new ways. All of this is why you came. The things that we are learning about ourselves is why you came. Our sin, our transgression, our iniquity. You came to make all things new. The one who holds all things together has come to make all things new. And we ask that you would root and ground us Encourage and embolden us. Drive out the despair and the fear. Forgive us for any extent to which we have adopted a bunker mentality and free us from that prison. You said the gates of hell would not prevail against the advance of your kingdom. Help us to advance that, to adopt, adopt that advancing mindset. Maybe the worst thing would not be the pandemic, but failing to look to you in the pandemic. Oh, we pray that the polar opposite would be true of us. We pray in your name.